You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So we've been doing the series, 21st Century Guide to the New Testament, for 13 lessons now, and we're finally on the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians I chose to entitle a church in identity crisis. And I think as we go through the lesson tonight, you'll understand what I mean. They were experiencing an identity crisis. It seemed like though they were saved and Paul calls them believers and saints at the beginning of the book, the entire book, they're just not acting like it. They're not acting like believers. They're not like acting like they ought to be if they're in Christ. And so they're in this identity crisis where they are believers, but they're acting like the world. And we see that incredibly often in Christianity today, where it seems like you get saved and, and, and a, a great portion of Christians think that that's just basically it. That's the most important thing that happens and there's really nothing after that. And, and we forsake this, this idea of discipling people and seeing them grow in holiness and love and, and, and using their spiritual gifts properly for the edification of the church. And so when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, we get this wonderful example of everything not to do. And so God gave us this book, I think, for a very good reason. Um, Last week we covered the book of Romans. And we said last week that it was the theological masterpiece of the New Testament. As we look at the entire Bible probably, I mean, it's the book that is just, all of the truths come to fruition and they're so clearly on display and you see the glory of the gospel in its full bloom in the book of Romans. The question is, how do you follow up the book of Romans? Well, you do it with a book like 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is probably the most important practical book on a variety of issues that pertain to the church and to the Christian life. And so if you are looking specifically for, here's a problem in the church, how do we deal with it? Then most of the time you will go to the book of 1 Corinthians. It is incredibly practical. Now that doesn't mean it's not theological, because we understood last week that the way Paul works and the way that the Bible works is, is they give glorious, wonderful truths and then they say, because of these truths, you ought to live like this. Okay, because of this, therefore do this. And that is again what we see in 1 Corinthians. We see, still see wonderful theological truths, but we see a great deal of practical knowledge for us as a church. And it really is an indispensable book for the church. I also believe that 1 Corinthians has the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the chapter on the resurrection, is probably the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. Now, some people will disagree with me. I I mean, I I think you can make a very good case. The most important event that happened in Christianity is the resurrection of Christ. Okay, all of Christianity is built on the resurrection of Christ. And if he is not resurrected, then everything we're doing is vain. And 1 Corinthians 15, it clearly lays out the proofs of the resurrection and then the result of the resurrection, how that should impact us in our lives. So when we examine the character of the church of Corinth, we are going to be disgusted. Okay? We're going to look at their church and think, how can, you, how can you possibly call yourselves a church? They were immoral. Um, if, if we had a church like Corinth that was down the street from us, we probably wouldn't want to go near them. We would probably be ashamed 
to call them Christians like us. I mean, we'd, we'd want to get as much separation between them and us as possible because they were just bringing so much shame to the name of Christ. That's how disgustingly immoral this church is. You will see that in a moment. But God uses the problems in this church to write a letter through Paul that is so important for us today because it deals with so many practical issues. And so you say, how could a church be so immoral? How could it be so terrible? How, what good could ever come of that? And, and, and should they have been that way? Absolutely not. But what a wonderful God who uses their sin to teach us so many incredible lessons. And that's, so that's what the book of 1 Corinthians does for us. And it's amazing, I think, as we look at the church, that the same issues come up over and over again. There is nothing new under the sun. The problems that they dealt with in Corinth are just repackaged in 21st century churches today. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson. Father, we love you. We thank you for this evening, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have to open up the Word of God, to know that it's perfect, that it's inspired. Lord, that you gave this letter specifically to deal with problems in our church and in churches today that it's so relevant for us. And Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that there are so many lessons we can learn. And I pray, Father, that you would open up our hearts, help us to learn the truths tonight, and Lord, help us to go home applying them to our lives and trying to bring you glory in everything we do. Um, Lord, allow us to honestly search ourselves for some of these problems, to not become proud in what kind of church we are compared to them, but say, Lord, what is it in our church that you would change? If you were to write a letter to us, what would it be? And I'm sure, Lord, that there are things in, that you wrote to 1 Corinthians that are relevant for us today. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us be our teacher. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Author of the book of 1 Corinthians was the Apostle Paul and a man named Sosthenes. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. And so Paul is writing... And he was the one that originally planted the church on his second missionary journey. And now he's writing to try and correct some of the problems that he's heard about that have been going on within the church. He spent about a year and a half there in the first place. At first, he met a great deal of opposition. And we saw that in that he was in the synagogue preaching the gospel, and he was kicked out of the synagogue. And so what he ended up doing is moving next door. Okay, he went in, I, I picture him going up to this guy named Justice's house who lived next door to the synagogue and saying, hey, listen, I lost my place in the synagogue. You need to get saved because we need a place to have a church. And so Justice do, does get saved. And soon after that, the chief ruler of the synagogue also gets saved. So the guy that would have kicked him out is now a Christian going to Justice's house next door um, and sharing in the Christian faith with, with Paul. Um, Aquila and Priscilla were there, and they're the ones that, that gave Paul his meals and took care of him and let him stay in their house, and they formed a great Christian friendship there. But the question is, who is this guy named Sosthenes? We know Paul is connected with the church, but who is Sosthenes? Well, Sosthenes, the only other Sosthenes found in Scripture, is also found at the same time when Paul was in Corinth. And he is the man, when Crispus the chief ruler of the synagogue got saved, he is the man that took his place. And very soon after that, Sosthenes saw that Christianity was growing. The, the synagogue decided they needed to do something about it to stop it. And so they went to Galileo, who was the Roman ruler of the, the time. He went to try and squash Christianity by saying, listen, these Christians, they're not a part of us. They're not a part of Judaism. 
And Galileo found him, what he's saying, it didn't make sense. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't buying what he was saying. And so he ruled in favor of the Christians. Well, after that, somebody, we don't know if it was the Romans or if it was the Jews in Sosthenes' synagogue, um, beat him up. So Sosthenes was beaten to a pulp. My assumption is, my guess is, that it's, it's the Jews that beat him up and that Paul afterwards and the Christians that were there went over and showed him Christian love. And soon after that, he came to Christ and now he is co-writing a letter with Paul to the Corinthian church. And so that would be two chief rulers of the synagogue that have gotten saved. They're, they're dropping like flies. But anyways, that, that's, that's what I think. It, it doesn't really matter. This man named Sosthenes is a brother in Christ and he's writing with Paul to the, book of, to the church of Corinth. The date it was written is A.D. 53 to 55. So when Paul was in Corinth, it was probably between A.D. 50 and 52. He left Corinth. He stopped quickly in Ephesus. Then he went and reported to Jerusalem. He went all the way back to, up to his sending church in Antioch. And then he decided to leave on his third missionary journey. And one of the first places he went to was Ephesus. And when Paul went to Ephesus in, in Asia, he spent three years there. And it was probably sometime during his stay in Ephesus, I, I would guess closer to the end of his stay, that he received a letter and probably a messenger that came and told him about all of these problems. And, and so Paul is heartbroken. And you can see that from his letter. You can see that from, uh, in a few different places. In fact, this was probably the second letter that Paul wrote to try and correct some of these problems. And so he writes this letter, heartbroken at this church that he's left, and when he left it, it was doing well, and now it's just... It's a mess. It's a wreck, it, morally. So he writes to correct these problems, and it's probably a few years after he planted the church, and that's where we get the date from AD 53 to 55. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, Paul says that he wrote from Ephesus. The audience of the church were believers in the church of Corinth. This is the second of four letters that Paul wrote to them. So we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that are saved for us. There are also two letters that are mentioned, one is mentioned in 1 Corinthians, and one is mentioned in 2 Corinthians that we no longer have. But we do know that he wrote four letters total. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. Okay, And so he goes on to explain that a little bit more, but basically he wrote an epistle just for the fact that he, saw, he heard about all this immorality going on in the church, and he, he wrote them this first letter. We don't have it anymore. That didn't seem to work very well, so he wrote them a second letter, probably a longer letter. And in this letter, he does a lot more defending his own apostleship and trying to point people back to the gospel and the cross and the fact that he was the one that planted their church in the first place and that he didn't receive any wages and that he wasn't a false teacher like so many other people that had come to Corinth, that they really need to listen to him. And he says, he almost warns them, hey, listen, do you think that I'm not coming back there? I'm coming back. Okay? And so he writes this letter to, to warn them that they need to get rid of this sin and to warn them that he's going to be coming back quickly. So what was the church of Corinth like? He wrote all these letters. Why? I mean, what, what's the problem in the church? Well, it stems from where they lived. The city of Corinth is called, was, has been called the city of Vanity Fair. And I just want to give you an, a quick idea of what Corinth was like. We talked about this when we went through the book of Acts, but I think it's important to get our bearings once again. 
The city of Corinth was the sin city of the entire world. It had a population of between 100,000 and 200,000 people. And it has been said by a man named Strabo. He was a first century historian. And he said that it is not for every man the voyage to Corinth. And what he's saying there is that there are a lot of people that will have trouble going to Corinth because it is so sinful. The words, if you, if you were to say that somebody was acting like a Corinthian, you meant that they were being a prostitute. Okay, that's, what, that's what the world knew about what Corinthians were. If you talked about Corinthian companions or Corinthian girls, that, 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 that was a way to say in the, throughout the entire world that you were a prostitute. Andrew Knowles is a commentary, writes a commentary on 1 Corinthians, and he says, In the ancient world, a Corinthian is a proud extrovert with a larger-than-life appetite for strong drink, wild parties, and easy sex. And so this is what this culture is like. There is a, an Acropolis, which is like the city would be built uh, on a, a fairly flat area, and then above the city there would be a big mountain that would kind of overhang a little bit, and on top of this mountain, there was a temple for the goddess Aphrodite. And the goddess Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And part of their worship in that temple was they, they would have a, a thousand temple priestesses who every night would raid the city, and, and part of their worship was to be prostitutes for the goddess Aphrodite. Okay? And, and the difference that we, would, that we don't get now that they had there is that this was open immorality. The city was proud of the reputation. There was, there was no attempt to cover it up. Even if you go to Las Vegas today, you can walk the streets during the day and you'll be fine. Okay? Even at night, if you walk by, you'll see some beautiful um, light shows and you know, uh, pirate shows. We've been there with our family. since. I'm not saying there's, a, there's a, an incredible amount of sin in Las Vegas, but they tend to put it behind closed doors. But not so much in Corinth. Corinth was very openly immoral. And so understand that we're dealing with a church that is just placed in the middle of this sin-sick city. What would that be like? I mean, we understand already what it's like to battle with our culture over moral issues. That we stand on some things that the culture, and even the government sometimes, says that are okay. We're, We're against that. But for them, it would be just open immorality everywhere you turn. I mean, that's, that's how you grew up. That's how everybody in the church was at one point. That would be a tough way to grow up. And so the problem with the church of Corinth is that they allowed the world into the church. And rather than them impacting the world around them, they were being impacted by that world. It was the city of filth. And when we look at the Bible, the church of Corinth is a filthy church. So, That is the audience. They're believers. They're saints. They're chosen by God. They are just as saved as you and I, but they're part of a church that is grossly immoral. So Paul's purpose in the letter then is to, first of all, answer questions and address problems of morality, unity, and doctrine that had arisen within the church. Paul wrote so that he could answer some questions, and then he wanted to address these problems that he saw. Problems about morality, about doctrine, about unity that had arisen in the church. Rather than having a systematic outline in the book of 1 Corinthians like he does in many other books. Hey, we saw when we looked at Romans, it was very systematic. He had a plan the whole time. But when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, 
it seems more like he's just addressing a bunch of problems or issues one by one. And a lot of commentators believe, in fact, Paul says it at one point, that they were asking questions, and he was just providing answers to questions. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. So he says, listen, you wrote these things, you had this messenger come, and he brought me a letter, and you asked these questions, and now I'm going to answer some of these questions for you. We see again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. Okay, I'm, I'm going to address those things now. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. I'm going to answer your questions about spiritual gifts now. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. Apparently they had asked about some kind of collection for the saints. And so Paul is writing to answer some of these questions. But I want to really quickly look at some of the problems that were addressed in this church so we really get a good idea of what this church was like. Okay? And, and I, what I've done is I took a list of about 20 problems and tried to condense it down to the top 10. And so, first of all, they perverted the doctrine of baptism. And you will see that these are serious problems, each one of them, serious problems. If we had a problem like this in the church, it would need to be dealt with immediately. So they had perverted the doctrine of baptism. We, we see that they were all so proud of themselves because they'd been baptized by a certain person. I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Paul. And then you had like the, the Baptists, the fundamentalists, would be like, no, I was baptized by Jesus. I'm so much better than you guys who were baptized by Paul or Apollos. You know? And they were just proud of themselves because of their, their baptism. So Paul makes it abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. How do you think you get saved? Well, it can't be by baptism, right? Baptism can't have anything to do with salvation. Otherwise, it'd be silly for Paul to say that his mission was to preach the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes, rather than preaching the gospel and baptism. And there's been a lot of people throughout the church's history that have been, tried to connect the two. But he says, I wasn't sent to baptize, I was sent to preach the gospel not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For pre the preaching of the cross to them is that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It's the, the gospel that's the power of God to save. And so they had perverted the doctrine of baptism. Number two, they had deceived themselves. And we see this theme throughout the book, but they were just proud. And they thought they had all of this wisdom. And we'll see again in the next one, but um, they considered themselves to be wise, but what they had done is they, they focused on so many tertiary issues rather than continuing to focus on the cross. And in our Christian lives, and I'm telling you, this is true for me, there's a tendency to really get wrapped up in like little, uh, we'll, say, we'll call them little doctrines. Not, like, not that they're not important, and not like they're, but sometimes we get so focused on being right, all the time, being right in every single area of our doctrine, that our focus shifts from all these things, from the cross, which is most important, to all these things. And you look at Christian academia, and, and you see so many scholars and writers that are brilliant. And if we could just use them to promote the, the cross and the gospel, it would be a wonderful thing. But instead, a lot of them had shifted their focus to so many things that just don't matter. 
And we need to be so careful that in our lives, we every day go back to the cross. That is what we're thankful for. That is what we live for. That is what we preach. Paul said that I'm, I, 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 I desire to know among you nothing other than the cross. That's a paraphrase. But it, he, he wanted to know anything among them other than the cross of Jesus Christ because that's what can save. So listen, in our lives, come back to the cross. It's not about all of our wisdom. It's about the cross. And they had deceived themselves. Number three, they were puffed up and proud. I wanted to read these verses to you because they're so good. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Now, and this is Paul being the height of his sarcasm. Okay? It, it's, it's funny when you think about him talking to this church that was so debauched this way. He says, Now you are full. Now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God you did reign that we might also reign with you. He's saying, you think you're so wonderful. You think you're reigning as kings. And I wish that was true because maybe we could come reign with you. But listen, it's not. It's not true. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. You see the contrast? I mean, everybody in the world knows that Paul is this wonderful believer in Christ. That he's sacrificing everything for Christ. And then he says to them, imagine what, what this would be like if a guy like the Apostle Paul said this to you. Well, you're just so wise and I'm a fool. I mean, obviously that's not true. He says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made of the filth of this world and are of the off-scouring of all things unto this day. <laughs> We're like the worst people that have ever lived. That's how we consider ourselves and that is how we live. And I've got to tell you, I, I, I can't imagine this not being convicting for them. To be sitting there and, and, and realizing that their entire lives are about pursuing pleasure and materialism for themselves... And then they have this guy who brought him to the gospel in the first place that is describing what he goes through all the time, every day, what his life is like. They've got to understand that that's, that's more of how they should be living, that they're living for the wrong thing. Um, he goes on, and I'll just finish this up. He says, I write not these things to shame you. Now, he says he didn't write them to shame you in verse um, 14, but I'm sure that they did. But he says, but, I, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be followers of me. Listen, I brought you the gospel. I'm trying to show you in my life how to live it. So follow me as I follow Christ. Verse 18, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. And he's saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, okay? So you should be ready for me to come to you. So they were puffed up and they were proud. The fourth problem is that they were to tolerating horrible immorality. First Corinthians 5 verse 1, we have the story of some of the grossest immorality we find in the Bible. Um, he says, Such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And so you have a, a, a young man that is sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmom. And this was going on. Now you say, okay, that, it's possible that things like that could happen in the church. It is possible in any church for something like that to happen. But I don't think there's very many churches that would be going around and openly telling each other that they're sleeping with their, right? 
that would be a bad thing and you would get in trouble in this church. <laughs> All right? And, and hopefully you get in trouble with any church. But in here, they were able to name this immorality that wasn't named among the Gentiles and still be accepted in the church. Have it be no problem. I mean, rough church. So tolerating horrible immorality, division and disunity, we see that through the entire book. Number five. Number six is confused about marriage. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this. In a society where there are sexual problems, in the society, there will always be sexual problems in marriages. Okay? And do you know what the problems usually are? And this is throughout history. The problems are that people that aren't married want to have sex. And people that are married do not. That is the opposite of what's supposed to be. God gave a wonderful gift to marriage. It's not supposed to be that way. Okay? And, and, and so that is what happens when we confuse. And that's why it's so important for believers to stand firm on God's plan for all of these things. Because when you do it the right way, when you do it God's way, then he blesses that. And then it's, a, it's this wonderful gift. And so there was huge problems about marriage and about relationships. And he talks about the gift of celibacy. He talks about what it means to be single, if you are. So First um, Corinthians chapter 7 is a great chapter on, on just you know, living in relationships. Chapter 8, verse 9, we have that they, were, that they had abused the doctrine of Christian liberty. And really, this theme follows from 8 to chapter 10. Um, they didn't understand what Christian liberty was, and so they were abusing it. They were taking something that was a good thing, and they were using it against one another. Uh, and it, it was not profiting the church. It was actually tearing down one another, and it was making it so other believers, other, sorry, other unbelievers didn't come to Christ. And so it was a big problem in the church. The eighth problem was that they were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Here at the Lord's Supper, communion should be a sweet time in the church. You had people that were getting drunk. They were cutting lines, so you just you know, get back up there to get back to the wine first. And then you had the poor people that couldn't afford to bring very much food, and that they were sitting on the side, not really welcome in the festivities in the Lord's Supper, and they're, so they're there starving, and everybody else is having this big party and getting drunk and, and, and eating way too much food. And this is, this is their version of Lord's Supper. It's just this one big party. And Paul said, that's not the Lord's Supper. I know you're coming together as a group, but you're not doing the Lord's Supper because that's not what it is. He also said that there are some people in this church that are sick and some people that are dead because of how they're treating the Lord's Supper. And so it was a very serious thing, a huge problem in the church. No self-examination, no thought of the cross, just another opportunity to get together and have a party. Number nine, their pride resulted in a misuse of spiritual gifts. And so, again, something a wonderful gift given to the church, spiritual gifts that every believer possesses to edify one another and edify the church, and they had just d taken these things and used them to build themselves up, especially with the gift of tongues. Everybody was standing up and, and wanting all the attention on them and wanting everybody to, to just look at how spiritual they were because they had the gift of tongues. Okay, and, that, and now that wasn't the only gift that was being misused, but listen, this was a huge problem in this church. Uh, chapters 12 to 14 deal with this problem. Paul is very clear that spiritual gifts are giving, given not for your personal edification. Okay, that is a gift that you have and you possess it and it's not for you. That is actually a gift that is designed for the church. Okay, it's not your gift, it's everybody's gift. And if you're not using it properly, then you're robbing the church of a gift that God gave you to give to everybody else. That's spiritual gifts. And so, 
Number 10, they doubted the resurrection. And I'm telling you, of all of these problems, I think this is the worst. They doubted the resurrection. Most important doctrine of the Christian faith. Paul made it clear, in, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, that if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. Everything that we say, it, it's, it's empty, it's meaningless, there's no point of it. Your faith is in vain. What you believe means nothing. He said, we are false witnesses of God. We're telling lies about God. He said that we're still in our sins. That those sins that, that we believed are now washed by the blood of Christ, it's not true if Christ is not risen from the dead. And so you're still in your sins. He says that believers who have died are eternally damned. This is a scary thing. Christ is not risen. This is the truth. And he said, to top it all off, we of all men are most miserable. Christian life is miserable if Christ is not alive. But if he is alive, then it's the most wonderful thing in the world, and, and it will be for eternity. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is with me. <laughs> I don't even know the rest of the song, but that, that's <laughs> it's a great song. I do know it. It's just not going to come to me because I'm nervous. Um, all right, so, I mean, greatest truth. And they messed it up. They were doubting it. And they were still doing weird things. Like, I mean, not even things that aren't even commanded anywhere in Scripture. They were baptizing people for other dead people. Okay? They were doing weird stuff like that. The, the most difficult verse in the Bible to understand, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29 Okay? And I think that we understand this by Paul is saying, listen, you're doing this and you don't even believe in the resurrection. What are you doing? How foolish is that? But that is this church. So Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. He answers their questions, but primarily he's correcting the problems of, of morality, of unity in the church, and of doctrine. The outline of the book, I think you have it there. I'm not going to go over it. Um, if you want to know the outline when you're reading it through, then there it is. The key verse, there are some books that they, they give you a key verse, so every commentator has an idea of a key verse. This is not a common one to choose, but I thought I'd describe the book of 1 Corinthians well. First, in 1 Corinthians 7.23, he says, You are bought with a price, be ye not the servants of men. Hey, you're bought with a price, so don't be the servants of men. Christ has saved you, so now serve something different. It just sums up the entire book well, because this is their problem. They were bought with a price, but they were still serving men. They were still serving themselves. They were still serving others, their, their culture. You're bought with a Christ, so, so serve God. It just makes sense. That's the key verse. Let's get into the application. This church was morally terrible. We've seen that, right? But what Paul has done throughout this book is he said that you are supposed to be a light to the world. And there's three areas I want to talk about that they're supposed to be alike. The first one is they're supposed to be unique in their culture, in their morality. Okay? They should be separate. They should be different. They sh it should be a noticeable difference when you look at the believers that are members of the church of Corinth, when you're working with them, when you're going to school with them, when you see them passing by in the street, when you see the activities they take part in in the evenings. There should be a difference. And there wasn't. And so he says you need to be unique in your morality. The culture around them was depraved. It was wicked. It was vile. It was filthy, corrupt, reprobate. I mean, you, you, the list goes on. It was terrible. They couldn't be that way. And the problem was, they were. Now you say, are they worse than us? Uh, is their culture worse than our culture? I don't know. 
I mean, I think they were more open with their sin, but I think if you look behind closed doors, you'll find all of the same sins. I think the human race hasn't really changed much in, in 6,000 years. Okay, I think from the fall, this is, this is just what the flesh does. And the difference between them is that they were just completely open about it. So this is the culture we live in. I want to give you an example of this. I just heard this this week. Um, in the past four years in the United States, it has gone from, if you were a Christian in the military, you were allowed to share your faith with other people. The rule that was just passed recently now is that if you're a Christian in the military, you are not allowed to share your faith with anybody that's below your rank. Okay, so you can't, you know, a, a general can't speak to a lower rank, any lower rank. So, so if you're a general, if you're the general, you can't speak about your faith to anybody. But you are allowed to speak your faith to people that are equal with you or, below, or above you, sorry. So that has changed, okay? In the same four-year period, it has gone from you are supposed to keep your sexual orientation to yourself to you are allowed to share that with everybody else. You're allowed to tell everybody about what you're sexual. I mean, if you're homosexual, be very proud of that. And so we went from keep that more quiet, just keep that to yourself, and you can share Christianity to keep Christianity quiet, but share your homosexuality in four years with a guy that calls himself a Christian president, right? That's unfortunate. Now, you say, is Canada the same way? Well, we're, we're going slowly. I mean, we have a good president, prime minister, sorry. I believe that Stephen Harper is a, a believer. But we don't, see Christ, we don't see Canada making huge moral reforms that are positive, and so we live in a tough culture to live in. And sometimes I think for believers it might be the toughest just because sin is so available. And you can still keep it quiet. We can have a church full of people on Sunday morning and think, you know what, I don't really know any, anybody here that is a, a big sinner. At least in Corinth, the church of Corinth, you knew the guy that was sleeping with his mom, but you don't know this anymore. Right? You look over the people and I see people that I have a great deal of respect for. I think you're moral, upstanding people. And a lot of us can go home and quietly, without anybody knowing, take part in the same sins that they were taking part in. And that, is, that, that makes it very difficult to have a pure church. It makes it very difficult to discipline members when you don't know about things. And so we have to fight for morality in our church. This has to be a fight in your own life. Hey, it is going to be a struggle that you deal with if you're a human being for the rest of your life, and so you have to fight for it. We have to fight for it as a church because if we don't fight for it, then we will, we will go that direction. That's a, like, if you think about it as immorality is a magnet, and if we are not fighting to get away from that, then we are just being pulled into it. That's what's going to happen. And so the, Paul says, you need to be unique in your morality. And you might ask, is that possible? Isn't it unavoidable in a culture like ours to be you know, to, to try and be pure and holy like Paul suggests we ought to be? Yes, it's possible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says, There has no temptation taken you but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But with that temptation, he will also make a way for you to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And that is a wonderful promise in Scripture. And that was a promise given to a church that was in the worst city in the world. And he says, I know there's temptation. The temptation itself is a sin. And, but if you, when you are tempted, then make sure you take the way of escape because God will give you a way of escape and he will give you a way to bear it. Hey, it's not impossible to live a pure, holy life. 
if you want to further investigate this point, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, and that's just a great text where Paul lists all of these sins, and then he says, and such were some of you, but you have been saved. You have been washed. Okay, you know Christ, and so you ought to live like you know Christ. They should be unique in their morality. They should be unique in their unity. Churches should be unified. And this church was divided. Okay? The entire church was divided. You had the rich and the poor classes. You had those that were so proud of their speaking in tongues and those that you know, just weren't quite good enough to do that. And, and you, you had those that were of Apollos and those that were of Paul and those that were of Jesus. And everywhere you look in the church, people suing one another. There's just disunity. It, it's, it's a terrible church to be in when it's not unified. And so we need to humble ourselves um, and love one another. I praise God for the church that we have. I, I really am grateful for the unity in this church. I, I think that, that the unity that we experience is very unique, even among churches that I know. It's a wonderful church to be in. But once again, we have to fight for that unity. It's not going to happen naturally because we are all sinners, right? We, we all have that sin nature still inside of us. And so if we don't fight for it, then we're naturally going to become proud and divisive. And all the things that happened in Church of Corinth, they're, they're, it's a warning for us. John chapter 13, verse 35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And that's what we ought to pursue in our church. So they need to be unique in unity. And following very closely with that point, number three, we need to be unique in our use of liberty. Okay, if you want to be unique in unity, if you want to have a unified church, we need to use liberty properly. And chapters 8 to 10 deal with this subject. We don't have time for a full discussion on that. Um, I think in the Frequently Asked Questions class, we'll get into it more. But I'll just answer this question. What is Christian liberty? What is it? Our liberty means that we are free from the eternal punishment of sin. We are free from the letter of the law when it comes to the civil and the ceremonial laws. Okay? We're no longer bound by the civil and ceremonial laws that, that the Jews were. We are free from eternal punishment, but we were, never, we were not freed from the commandments of the moral law. Okay? So when we talk about freedom, we don't mean we're free to do whatever we want any time. What we mean is we are free from the eternal punishment of our sins, of not keeping the law, and we are free from, from some of the ceremonial laws that they, did, they had to keep before. Our liberty is for three things. The glory of God, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for your body with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So it's, it's there for the glory of God. It's there for the edification of believers. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul says, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And so I'm going to pursue, I'm going to use my liberty properly because I, my goal is edification of believers. And finally, liberty is for the salvation of sinners. We ought to be using our liberty to bring people into the kingdom. And that's what Paul did. He said, I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, but it really starts in verse 19. He said, To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that, that I might by all means save some. I'm going to use this liberty, and, and what I mean by use this liberty, I'm going to give up my liberty that I have in Christ because I want to bring glory to God, I want to edify other believers, and I want to see people saved. And that is the right way to use our liberty. And so, 
If I was to tell you what the message to the church of Corinth was in three words, I would say, just be a light. Be a light. Be a light in the area of morality. Okay? Be a holy and pure people because your God is holy and pure. Be unified, which is very different from what the world is. Love one another. The world will notice that. And finally, use your liberty for good.